The Ford Show. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Ford Show. I'm your host, Jason Ford. And I've got a great show for you today, a real trip down memory lane. Because this year marks the 50th anniversary of one of my favourite films and what's become a real classic over time, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And the best part for you is that I've got a golden ticket because in a short moment I'll be speaking to one of the most memorable characters from the film, Veruca Salt, which was played by Julie Dawn Cole. Now, Julie's going to take us through the magic of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory and you never know, she might even reveal a few secrets along the way. And back in 2010, she wrote a wonderful book called I Want It Now, a memoir of life on the set of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which documents her time on the set of the movie, as well as her personal life. So for the next hour, if you want to return to a world of pure imagination, hold your breath, make a wish, and count to three. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Julie Dawn Cole to The Ford Show. Julie, thanks for your time. Nice to speak to you, Jason. Uh, Sunday morning for me, Sunday evening for you. So let's get on with this interview. I mean, there's so much time and so little to cover. Uh, Strike that. Reverse it. That's a familiar phrase. A familiar phrase. (laughs) A familiar phrase. And and look, I promise that's my one and only Wonka gag for the interview. We have to get on. We have to get on. We have so much time and so little to do. Strike that. Reverse it. Now, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory turns 50 this month. Why do you think it's endured for so long? Well, that's the million-dollar question, really, isn't it? Um, who knows? Because when it came out at the at the time, the box office, it was not a success. It, it kind of lasted for three or four weeks, which, you know, back in the day when you had only sort of two movie screens, you know, the A movie and the B movie or whatever it was, you know, you needed a movie to last a lot longer than that at the box office. So it came and it went and it disappeared. And then, um, you know, it came back in the 80s, I think, you know, it wasn't something I talked about during the 70s at all, at all. Um, Don't think it ever came up in conversation. And then it was a, a, a new generation, I suppose, when the film originally came out, the idea of having horrible children that you effectively killed off was not very politically correct. You know, um, movies then were Disney movies and you had, you know, Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and the children were lovely. And then along come these four hideous characters. And uh, so I don't know, it was it, it didn't go down well at the time. It was ahead of its time, maybe. And then as, as things have gone on, people have kind of appreciated the the layers that seem to be in it. You know, the adults like it because of the, the gags and the quotes and the things that you begin to notice. Kids like it because well, it's about chocolate. And who doesn't like that? Well, me as a child, I did not like chocolate. But <laughs> so I don't know. And I guess at the heart of it, it's a sort of moral tale, isn't it? That if you're nice, good things will happen to you. And we all want to believe that. Well, it was Roger Ebert, the famous film critic, once said of the movie that it was probably the best film of its sort since The Wizard of Oz. It's everything that family movies usually claim to be, but aren't. Delightful, funny, scary, exciting. And most of all, a genuine work of imagination. That's lovely to hear. And maybe he's right. You know, it's what what we all want a family movie to be. Um, Mel Stewart, the director, was very adamant. Um, sadly, he's passed away now, but he was very adamant that he was not making a movie for kids. He was making a movie and he wanted it to work on all levels. So he wasn't 
you know, uh, pandering to or talking down to children. You know, he was a bit of an irascible character himself. He was, you know, typical kind of shouty, grumpy director. So he never made allowances for children or, you know, so he didn't he didn't sugarcoat anything. Well, I recall watching an interview with Mel Stewart, the director, where he said that the children are smart and will get the references, but he wasn't making a Disney film. No, no. And so, you know, the kids do get it and they like the idea that the bad kids are, are going to get their comeuppance. Um, when we go around, I think m- most of the kids that I meet all say, you know, if you ask them who did they want to be in the movie, they all want to be Veruca Salt, <laughs> which is quite funny. But then ultimately, you know, at the heart of it, they like to think that maybe they're a bit more Charlie Bucket. Well, that's actually quite funny that you're saying that they all wanted to be Veruca Salt because in your book you talk about going to a screening and getting a rude shock. Yeah, I did. Uh, when I went to my local movie theatre, because I'd seen it at the premiere, which was with uh, Princess Margaret was the, the guest of honour at the, the premiere. So I saw it there in very kind of, you know, adult company. And then I went to the local movie theatre and all the kids were booing and cheering, especially when Veruca went down the chute. It's like, oh, they hate me. <laughs> so it was quite funny. What were you thinking as you were leaving the theatre? just a weird feeling to think that you know however many people were in that movie theater at that time maybe 300 or something is you know they've all been watching some, and this was now a year and a half since we finished shooting it so I don't even it didn't even cross my mind that I might be recognized and I think I could probably snuck out before the lights came back up again um but it was a it was a strange feeling to think that you've you know these people have such a strong reaction to you <laughs> Well, one of the people that actually didn't like the movie was the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Roald Dahl. In in fact, I read that he wouldn't even hand over the sequel rights. He was so upset with the movie. And I remember reading that he wanted either Peter Sellers or Spike Milligan to play Willy Wonka. No, it would have been a very different movie. Roald Dahl was a, a difficult man. You know, a lot's been written about him and what he said. But, you know, having personally met him several times, he was difficult. Um, as was Mel Stewart, the director. He was difficult. Um, they even knew that Roald Dahl would be tricky before shooting started. And the executive producer, uh, whose name was Robert Newman, was brought on because he knew Roald Dahl socially. So he was kind of brought on the project to wrangle Roald Dahl because they knew he'd be mm, difficult. He didn't like anything changed, you know. So if you actually read the script, an awful lot of it is directly lifted from the book. The dialogue is lifted from the book, which is fine and it works. But there are other bits that Mel Stewart said, you don't make a movie of a book, you make a movie of a screenplay. And so something had to be changed. So there was always conflict between the two of them. And you're right, yes, um, Spike Milligan was his choice originally. And then there were some other people in the frame. Uh, Joel Grey was a, a, a contender for a long time. That was from the American side of things. But Joel Grey was um, not known for his height. And they thought that he wouldn't, there wouldn't be much of a distinction between him and the Oompa Loompas. So, you know, along came Gene Wilder, another one that was... Uh, thrown into the mix was um, Fred Astaire. He wanted to play it. And uh, he met, I think it must have been Roald Dahl sometime later, and was rather wistfully saying, you know, why wouldn't they let me play it? Why wouldn't they let me play it? Because it would have been a very different movie. And who's to say whether it would have, you know, been more successful, less successful, we don't know. We'll never know. 
What was your reaction at the premiere seeing the film for the very first time? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, at that point, it's a year later since we wrapped production and it's now, you know, 1971 and seeing it all put together for the first time. Uh, so the bits that I hadn't seen and didn't know how they were going to come off. And the bit that I remember more than anything was being quite scared with the uh, the fizzy lifting drinks sequence, thinking, oh, no, Charlie's going to go into those rotating blades and forgetting that. Of course he doesn't because he was in the next scene and I know he was okay but you know getting caught up in it like everybody else. Well you mentioned that the movie faded into the background for you. Um, you you've got a couple of kids yourself. What was their reaction the first time they saw the movie? Yeah um, I was very keen to you know show both my children something that I'm you know quite proud of and I wanted them to enjoy it. I think I'd probably jump the gun a little bit with my daughter especially because she was too young and she fell asleep. <laughs> So that was hilarious. My son, um, I have a great fond memory of Peter Ostrom's son, Leif, and my son, Barney, um, watching it at a convention that we were in at in uh, Florida. I, don't, I forget how old Barney would have been, maybe, I don't know, maybe about eight or something. And he and Leif just sat watching it in a continuous loop all day long, eating chocolate. That's a, a, a funny image that I still have. Now, back in 2010, you wrote a fabulous memoir about the movie and your life. And reading it, it became very clear to me that Veruca Salt, the sport little rich brat you played in the film, is a complete polar opposite to Julie Dawn Cole. You know, I was, uh, my background was a little bit more Charlie Bucket than Veruca Salt. Um, you know, my mum was a single mum with two kids. She was working, you know, as many jobs as she could to keep a roof over our heads. Um, you know, she did all of that kind of stuff. So we were, we were poor. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, you know, a new dress maybe happened once a year if you were absolutely growing out of it, that kind of thing. So to suddenly be catapulted into this world you know of cars and eating in a restaurant I, mean, I had never stayed in a hotel before and there I was you know in Germany for three months and um, being picked up in a chauffeur-driven car every day it was extraordinary but you know there was part of me that also had no idea about this life I met my chaperone at the airport this was the woman that I was going to spend the next three months with and uh you know, we were then staying in this rather nice hotel in Munich, Bavaria. And I had no idea that there was such a thing as hotel laundry service. And it never occurred to me to ask about it. So there was me, 12 years old, you know, washing my underwear in the bathroom sink and drying it on the radiator. I had no idea that you didn't have to do that. <laughs> and then when we finished the movie, um, flew back to the UK and my mum met me at the airport and I said, oh, can we, you know, are we getting a car home? Are we getting a taxi home or something? And she went, no, dear, we go back on the train and the bus. And I thought, OK, that's it. Back to earth. <laughs> back to reality. Where did the love of acting come from for you? I've done a lot of thinking about this. And, you know, most kids like the make-believe. Nowadays, I'm a psychotherapist. That's what I do. So with my therapist hat on, I would guess that I was trying to escape my life. You know, my life was not great and having this fantasy world and everything where you, you could be whoever you liked. I think it was it was about that. It was about, you know, just yeah, wanting to to escape the reality. Um, but, you know, like most kids, you know, the lighter version is, you know, who wouldn't want to spend their life playing make believe? 
And I believe you got to work with one of your childhood heroes in Hayley Mills. Yes, I did. So, you know, growing up, Hayley Mills was everything I wanted to be. Child star in movies, you know, she was pretty and talented. And I remember seeing her in The Parent Trap and Pollyanna and loads of other things. Um, just wanting to be Hayley Mills. I was uh, my favorite film was a I think it was a Disney film, uh, In Search of the Castaways, and that was it. I, I have a copy of it now, it's my sort of fantasy film. <laughs> and uh, then my very first job that my very first audition was to play Liza in a production of Peter Pan over the Christmas period in London and Hayley Mills was playing Peter Pan and the very first day of rehearsals you know I was following this person into the rehearsal building happened to be wearing a rather glamorous fur coat and held the door open for me and it was Hayley Mills and I stood there like a dummy and let the door swing in my face I was so stunned. <laughs> That's a great little story. Um Moving on to the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, how did the idea come about to adapt the Roald Dahl children's book into a movie? Um, Mel Stewart, the director, had a daughter who was round about my age, uh, Madeline. She's now a very well-known and respected um, interior designer in Los Angeles. And she'd read the book, I think, at school. Um, the book had been published, I believe, in 68, we're probably now talking 69 when probably the idea came about because it started to go into production in 70 and she'd read this book and she said to her father this would make a great movie so it's all down to Madeline Stewart and there was also an interesting tie-in at the time with Quaker Oats who actually funded the production mm -hmm. yeah um, the intention was to launch a chocolate bar at the same time um, so it was going to be the Wonka bar and that was going to be Quaker Oats stroke Nestle. So that was Quaker Oats involvement with it. I never know, did find out what happened, but the, the Wonka bar didn't happen for various production reasons. They couldn't do it. And, um, you know, in the time frame or what have you, but that was, it was Quaker Oats put up a lot of the money for it. Something I probably haven't said very often, but because of it was Quaker Oats and there we were in Germany, all living in hotels and missing our traditional breakfasts so Quaker Oats actually sent out a shipment a carton of breakfast cereal to us I think it was probably stale by the time it arrived but uh, it was a nice gesture suddenly all these packets of porridge and uh, you know oatmeal cereal and everything arrived. <laughs> the story of the Oompa Loompas is an interesting one in itself because in Roald Dahl's book they are black pygmies but in the movie they have an orange face and I understand there were some racial sensitivities there at the time. Yeah, uh, this change came about, uh, we're talking 1969 when it went into pre-production, very political time, and the it was the American Civil Rights Movement and um, the, some black activists uh, went to Mel Stewart in his office in Los Angeles and said, you know, you've got these essentially black pygmy slaves, you know, you what are you going to do about it? And so Mel, quick thinking, said, no, 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 they're not going to be black. They are going to be orange faces and green hair. And that was it. So they were. Um, but that's that's where it came from. You know, that's why. I mean, obviously, that would not be the done thing to show these, um, you know, black pygmy slaves. But, you know, how times change. That was, you know, that was how, what Roald Dahl wrote in the book. So why is it called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as opposed to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Well, this is the other um, reason is that um, there, there's some 
couple of theories about this and Mel isn't around. I, I believe he did talk about this before, but Charlie was referred to as the enemy in Vietnam. So Charlie was, um, I think I'm talking Vietnam or, or Korean War, anyway, whichever one it was. But so Charlie was, you know, if, you, if the enemy was the, was Charlie, you're going to shoot Charlie. So that was not going to work. And also the other thing, um, which might be partly to do with as well, Charlie was in the slave world. Charlie was the name of the, the overseer, the master. The master was known as Charlie. So again, a Black Rights reference, we didn't want to do that. What do you remember about your audition? Well, the very first audition, I was at theatre school and it was literally the cattle call. All the girls at the right age and height were lined up in the school hall and it was you, you, not you, too tall, too dark, too old, do whatever. And that was the first. And then, of course, there were the short lists and uh, you get recalled and recalled. I don't remember how many recalls I had. Not that many, maybe a two or three. I still hadn't read the book at this point. I didn't know the book. So, but before the final one, they said, I think you should probably read the book and went round Hammersmith in London with the school bus driver looking for a copy, read it that night and thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So the final audition um, with Mel Stewart, the director, and I think it was Stan Margulies, the, one of the producers. They didn't have a script ready at that point. They had the book and they didn't have a musical score. So I read from the book. I still have my copy of that book. And I sang Happy Birthday. That was my audition song. You were just talking about how your childhood was more Charlie Bucket than Veruca Salt. How did you channel being a sport little rich brat? Wow, I suppose just going for it, really. I mean, you know, it, you're suddenly being allowed to be all the things that in the real world you're not allowed to be. So, you know, my mother would have given me a belt, you know, if I, not that she did, but, you know, she would have, told me off and I was quite an obedient little girl I wasn't uh, willful or, or, or naughty uh, not over overtly anyway so yeah it was just like being allowed to be mean somebody said somebody you know you were suddenly given permission to be all the things that you're normally told not to and what was the feeling like when you got the part amazing I remember going back to school after the audition so the audition would have been first thing in the morning uh, my mum put me on the train. I used to travel on my own on the, the tube, the subway to my school and got back there. She obviously went back to her job, her work. And then the agent came in, must have been mid-morning lunchtime to say I'd got the part. But of course, I had to wait till 6.30 in the evening when my mum got back from work to tell her that I'd got the part. So that was like, oh, I can't wait to tell her. So it was quite a, you know amazing, surreal feeling to be told and just sit on that information all day. Where was Willy Wonka filmed? It was filmed at the Bavaria Film Studios in uh, Munich, just outside Munich in Germany. Um, I was on the production for about three months. Charlie Bucket was on it the longest. He had all that running around and delivering newspaper stuff to do first. So he was on it for five months. And uh, yeah, we had a, a great time. Bavaria Film Studios is still there. You can do, go and do a tour. Um, they also filmed Cabaret there and Never Ending Story and Das Boot was filmed there. But when you do the tour and they mention all these other movies, there is no mention of Willy Wonka. They just kind of didn't really celebrate it in Germany. <laughs> Why was it filmed in Germany? They had very big sound stages and they had multiple sound stages. So 
there was talk of doing it in Todeo in Los Angeles, I think. So I think budget had something to do with it. Mel Stewart had already been out there a little bit earlier filming. Um, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. So he had a film crew ready together. They had the technology to do things like the river and all of that. And uh, it also had this kind of locations that you wouldn't really place. So it had the kind of cobbled streets that made when you were doing the location work, just, you know, you couldn't really identify it. would If you'd shot it in Los Angeles, it would have dated, um, you know, if you'd seen all of that. So it had that fairy tale quality that uh, Mel was looking for and that, the, you know, the, you couldn't place it. No time, no place. And what was your first day on the set like? Well, my first day on the set was actually not on the set. Um, it was recording the song. So I went out earlier to pre-record the song, but obviously got given a little tour of the set. So the first time I actually ever walked on a film set was the day that Peter and Jack were recording their I've Got a Golden Ticket number. So they were doing that. And I remember standing watching that for quite some time. Um, it had never, <laughs> I'd never even thought about the fact that there's no fourth wall. The fourth wall is the camera. So it was like, oh, there's only three walls on this set. That was kind of interesting to watch that and watching, you know, you do one piece over and over again and very short sequences. And then, you know, another bit, another short, and then you wait and then another sequence and then you wait. A lot of waiting in movie making. I want to go in first before anybody else. Anything you say, sweetheart. The first scene that I actually shot was the exterior of the chocolate factory when all the kids are there waiting to go in. So we shot that in September and that was the first time that we all met each other. I think it was, you know, a good plan to do that as the first thing because it was even in the mood, in the story terms of, you know, when, when the kids all first met, but also, you know, logistically they needed to do it while the weather was good. We were shooting starting, you know, September going into the winter. So we got a sunny day, several days, because um, it did take, you know, about a week to shoot just that one sequence. I'm Veruca Salt. My dear Veruca, what a pleasure. And how pretty you look in that lovely mink coat. I've got three others at home. Yeah, um, I had met Jean briefly um, around the studios, you know, for costume fittings and makeup tests and that kind of thing. And then that day we hadn't seen him, you know, he kept a low profile, which was, which he never did after that. But, and then they said, right, Gene's gonna come out now. And uh, he was limping. And I was thinking, oh, well, he wasn't limping last week. They must've had an accident or something, what's happened? So, you know, I was as taken in by that as everybody else. And then of course he did the tumble, which uh, is now legendary. Well, that first scene with Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka is, is quite interesting. Uh, in an interview, he basically said that if you couldn't do that stunt, you know, of coming out pretending he was a cripple, then leaping into the somersault at the end, then he wouldn't do the movie. And he told Mel Stewart this. That's right. That's right. He wanted, he, for him, that set the character up that you never knew whether he was lying or telling the truth. And that was, that was key for him so you just from that entrance and isn't that genius that that you know he came up with that and thought about that and thought this would be you know incredible to do and he pulled it off and it was quite difficult as well because he had to put the cane in a particular place and had to you know hit the marks and obviously we had to do it several times and you know catch the hat and all of that kind of stuff so he did it brilliantly I mean if you watch it if you're very eagle-eyed you might be able to catch how long it took to do it because you'll see that the shadows move. 
<laughs> what was it like working with Gene Wilder? Uh, he was lovely, you know, and I have no bubbles to burst there. He was lovely. He was kind. He was patient. He was tolerant, professional. He was not standoffish. You know, there was no kind of, you know, going off to his trailer. You know, he'd hang around on the set with Roy Kinnear and Jack Albertson and Leonard Stone. Or, you know, they'd all be chatting and telling stories. And um, yeah, he was lovely. A lovely guy. I mean, I recall reading a piece you wrote for Time following the death of Gene Wilder in uh, back in 2016, where you said that the camera doesn't lie about warmth. He had that warmth. He was. He was. Um, he was. He was very sweet, very thoughtful. Um, I'm told, and I told by Rusty Goff, who played one of the Oompa Loompas. He was one of the younger Oompa Loompas, who's still a great friend now. Rusty said, told me that after a couple of weeks of shooting, Gene realised that I was the only child there that didn't have a, a parent or a family member with me. I was on my own with my chaperone. So I had nobody looking out for me. And he learned this, you know, he was saying, who's with you? And it's like, well, just my chaperone who I'd never met before. And um, so he felt rather sad for me about that and, and concerned. And apparently he said to Roy and to everybody else, you know, hey, this kid's on her own. We've got to look out for her, which was so sweet of him to, to notice. Now, I assume your favourite scene with Gene Wilder in the movie was the lickable wallpaper scene. <laughs> yeah. Snozberry. Whoever heard of a snozberry? One of my favourite lines. <laughs> and, yeah, it was funny. Um, yeah, they painted my tongue with some powder to make it look red, and it was rather revolting. You know, it was sort of dry food colouring or what have you, and they're saying, you know, don't don't keep licking it off. And you think, well, how, I cough, I'm going to lick it off. Come on, I've got to put my tongue in my mouth. <laughs> what was on the wallpaper? Nothing. They did try, first of all, putting a bit of jam on it to make it kind of taste a bit better. But if you ask Peter Ostrom, Charlie Bucket, he'll say, and the wallpaper tasted of wallpaper. <laughs> the strawberries taste like strawberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries. Snozberries? Who ever heard of a snozberry? We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. Yeah. There's so many little phrases like that that I kind of like painted on my wall, you know. And you hear them every now and again, which is, is wonderful. You know, somebody will say, ah, oh, so shines a good deed in a weary world. Um, just these little gems that have now gone down you know, I, I suppose in years to come, people will forget where they came from, you know, a little bit like, um, you know, your sayings and mottos that you have in your family, you know. Okay, well, where that came? You know, and now I, it always makes me smile when I hear somebody say, ah, you know, she's got the golden ticket. From interviews I've seen with the director, Mel Stewart, he liked to keep that element of surprise so that the first reaction he captures on camera is real and not rehearsed. And I mean, basically what I'm referring to here is the chocolate room scene. Well, you're quite right. Mel wanted to keep things secret for as long as possible, especially from the kids. So he wanted original reactions. And so the instruction came round that nobody was allowed on that set. However, you know, before the shooting. However, I because I'd gone out to record my song and they were constructing the set at that point, I think it was Harper Goff said, oh, would you like to see it? And of course, I said yes. And he showed me all around the set. And... Uh, then we got the 
it, it wasn't completed at that point, but, you know, it was coming along. And then we got the instruction from Mel that on no account were we to see it. So I just kept quiet and never told him that I'd seen it. Um, but I did tell him 30 years later when we were at a reunion in New York. And I said, look, because he kept telling this story about that was their original reaction. I never let them see it. And I thought, oh, I can't go on with this anymore. It's like, you know, little Georgie Washington. I cannot tell a lie. And so I told him and I said, Mel, I have to confess that I've seen it. His language was colourful, let's say. I, you know, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but so I won't swear, but it was colourful. <laughs> Even after 30 years? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was furious. <laughs> what was your reaction when the chocolate room doors opened? Well, we saw what you saw. Um, you know, it was all there. It wasn't CGI'd. It was all there. And it did look amazing. You know, the colours were incredible. There was so much to see. So I remember you know, they just said, we're just going to let you stand there for a while. And I think they sort of panned around on our reactions while we were looking at it you know the waterfall was running the river you know it was stunning all those trees the mushrooms uh, and then the boat came in so they just did that for us to kind of go Ooh, you know see all of that so it was it was beautiful and look, I mean this is a question you probably get asked all the time but how much of the chocolate room was actually edible now it depends how old you are when you ask that question <laughs> If you're six, I'll tell you everything. Um, but if you're a grown up, um, the things that you saw us eating were the edible bits. You know, they substituted parts of it if we were eating it in a close up. So Denise, Violet Beauregard's gummy bear, that was not all edible. I mean, that would be for a start, it would be like 50 pounds of <laughs> candy, um, a few calories in that one. So they replaced the ear um, and she was able to eat the gummy bear ear. So uh, bits and pieces. Um, yeah, and I got to eat that terrible stuff in the watermelon, which was rather disgusting, a sort of chocolate puddingy, yeah, custard, horrible, didn't like that. How did you go with that? Because I understand you had to do a few takes. Yes, more than a few. And I swear that was because Mel was trying to wind me up and get me angry. And uh, he wanted me to smash that really hard and kept going at it and going at it. And if you're, again, very eagle-eyed, uh, you'll notice that there's one very quick take where you can see that my knee, my left knee is bloody because that rock that I was smashing the watermelon on was real and sharp. And then he kept saying, you know, look like you're enjoying it. And I would say, I'm not, I'm not enjoying it. As a child, I was not very keen on chocolate didn't really care for chocolate. I mean, growing up watching the movie, the one thing I really wanted to eat was that teacup Willy Wonka bites into at the end of the song. Which, sadly, to tell you, was not edible. It was made of wax. It was quite difficult for them to make, so they only made a few, so they had a required number of takes that they needed to do. And they gave him a spit bucket, so he crunched into it, spat it out, and they dubbed on the lovely chomping. But yeah, I, I, I think, I suppose everybody in that scene has a favourite of what they wanted to get at. Um, don't know what I would have liked. In reality, we were rather pleased to... Um, share our spoils later on and Paris who played Mike TV got all those uh, gumballs from the tree <laughs> so we scooped them up you know the three second rule if it's been on the floor for three seconds it doesn't count so we scooped them up and shared them out later. And was that the first time you saw the Oompa Loompas? I'd seen them again on the makeup testing so I'd seen them you know getting ready and having the makeup trials 
Um, but the first time we saw them, they brought them out on the other side of the river doing the creaming and the sugaring and all of that bit. So that was the first time that we saw them in costume and makeup fully done. So that was, yeah, I do remember that quite well, thinking, ooh, yes, they look fun. But of course, we'd seen them, you know, hanging around the set. So, you know, a lot of people I know say, oh, they found them quite scary. But, you know, to me, they were just the guys. Hey, Daddy, I want an umpa lumper. I want you to get me an umpa lumper right away. All right, Ruka, all right. I'll get you one before the day is out. I want an umpa lumper now. Can it, you nit? How did you get on with the rest of the cast? What were they like? Yeah, um, well, you know, it was like being at sort of camp, really. Um, Denise and Charlie and myself were the three closest in age. Also Michael, who played Augustus, but Michael didn't speak English and he lived locally. So we didn't really mix with Michael. And then Paris was two years younger. Mike TV was, he was 11. We were, you know, a year and a half or something, uh, 11, and we were turning 13. So Denise... Peter and myself were probably the closest, but there were also other children around that um, the assistant director had his kids on set. Mel Stewart had his family out there. So there were a bunch of other kids as well, but I would say Denise, Peter and I were the closest and we were staying in the same hotel. So we hung out a lot together. And there was a friendly rivalry between you and Denise who played Violet Beauregard. Yes, we both had a little bit of a crush on Peter. Um, you know, it was all very innocent, but it was kind of like whose turn was it to stand next to him today and that kind of thing. P- poor Pete had no idea any of this was going on. You know, he was oblivious to what young girls think. <laughs> how did he handle it? Uh, well, how does he handle it now? You know, when we sort of tease him about it now, he sort of blushes and, and chuckles silently. He, he's he's such a sweet guy and we're still all very close uh, sadly we lost Denise two years ago um, but you know when I speak to Pete he, and the nice thing is that he's grown up exactly as you would imagine Charlie Bucket would grow up you know he's a lovely guy he's uh, a large animal veterinarian you know working with animals not pretentious or and he never made another movie he wasn't interested in the business um, yeah so he's He's a, he's a grown-up version of Charlie Bucket. Now, in your book, you write that while there wasn't any romantic involvement with uh, Peter or Charlie, when you left the set, it was like saying goodbye to your first love. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, you know, I'd had you know my secret crush, as you do when you're 12. It's like, oh. And, you know, then, of course, we never saw each other again. But you know, and, and, of course, saying goodbye to everybody. They, they'd become my family for the last three months. It's quite an intense experience when you're filming. And I would say probably more so then than it might be now because you're isolated. You've got no communication. You know, I, I couldn't even phone home. You know, back then you'd have to do um, international calls, would have to be booked. Now... Just back to Peter for a second. While, while you had a crush, you did actually have a little fight which took place during the Wonkatavia scene. Yes. Uh, yeah, There's when we got on the boat, there's a publicity shot that is around now. You know, it's there, immortalised. And you can see Peter looking rather... He's got his hands in his pocket and he's sort of shrugging his shoulders all, almost. And I'm looking down and I'm looking smug. And I don't remember what happened, but I'd said something rather mean to him. And so I was rather pleased with myself, you know, and then we got on the boat and I was deliberately not speaking to him. Um, I think I was just trying to get his attention really. It didn't work. <laughs> and that scene was your least favourite in the movie? It was it was it was tedious. You know, we the boat itself um, was you know kind of shot in two parts or three parts actually. So the bit in the imagination room um, that was quite fun. That bit uh, there was a 
a day when the, the the track on that it was running got stuck and the boat got stuck so that was fine we had to film that a few times then we moved to a different soundstage where the boat was put up onto ladders or you know onto big platforms high up in the air so that they could project all that terrible stuff behind us and that was just rather tedious because once you were in the boat 30 foot up in the air you stayed there you know you couldn't go off and do anything else um and then of course the, the final bit when we arrive at the inventing room but that's uh, yeah so it was three separate stages but the, the middle bit of and Gene doing the crazy stuff, you know, which we had no idea he was going to do the scream and the weirdness that he did. What a nightmare. Daddy, I do not want a boat like this. Now, Gene Wilder was asked in the documentary what it was like to work with the younger generation. And can I stress that he said the next bit with a smile and uh, a bit of a tongue in cheek. Four of them were fantastic, but one of them I'm going to shoot in the head tomorrow. Who was that? Well, I could hazard a guess. All I can say is it wasn't me. <laughs> That's all I will politely say. <laughs> it wasn't me. Uh, I have my suspicions, but I'll never know the answer to that. And, you know, maybe Gene maybe was just being frivolous. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there were some cheeky antics on the set. The bees? Yeah, we um, the bees got out. The bees that were in the, the honey thing for the... Um, the gum they got out we, we still debate this all the time and Paris gets quite upset because we accuse Paris of doing it we kids said he did it whether he did or not he says I couldn't have done it because I couldn't reach I wasn't tall enough and I wouldn't have been able to do it but he was the only one that got stung by the bees so I don't know Paris was as I said two years younger than the rest of us and he was quite loud and quite uh uh, full on, let's put it that way. He was full on. Now, when Oompa Loompa told me that a couple of gobstoppers went missing from the set, can you shed any light on that? It's funny how that happened. I have really no idea how that happened. You know, it just seemed to still be in my hand. I have no idea. Do you still have them? I don't. I sold a lot of my props a few years ago, especially when the the other version, <laughs> the Johnny Depp version was coming out thinking, okay, well, we've probably, you know, had our innings now. And, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, these pieces are only worth what somebody wants to give you for them. They're pieces of cardboard, pieces of junk. So I decided to sell a few things at that point. I sold a few more bits and pieces recently. It was kind of trade thinking, I've got this stuff that I never look at. My daughter was getting married. I thought, well, do you know what? Would I, what would I rather, that she had the wedding dress of her dreams or I hang on to this stuff? So I sold it to pay for the wedding dress. And I understand that you ad-libbed the gesture in that everlasting gobstopper scene that the director ended up using. He did. Um, as kids, something I grew up doing, when you told a fib and you knew you were telling a fib, you'd cross your fingers and put your hand behind your back, you know, so that nobody could see. And so I did that. And Mel said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, that's what we do. And he kind of liked it and kept it in. So there's a close up of my hands quickly going behind my back with my fingers crossed. Who wants an everlasting gobstopper? Me! I can only give them to you if you solemnly swear to keep them for yourselves and never show them to another living soul as long as you all shall live. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Now, we're heading towards your big scene, the, the geese that lays the golden egg, which sees you running right and eventually disappearing down that chute. Can you tell us about that scene? Because it happened on a special day for you, your 13th birthday. 
It did, it did. We'd spent a little bit of time rehearsing it beforehand at weekends while they were constructing the set. So just plotting out what the moves were going to be. And yeah, it was my 13th birthday. So uh, the, the final bit when they, you know, I did the I want it now, went down the chute. That was actually my 13th birthday. So they gave me a cake, sang happy birthday to me. And then Mel was like, right back to work get on with it um but yeah it was a it was a fun sequence to do it was difficult you know there's a lot of moving parts in that sequence and there's one part you know they were quite long if you watch it again and think about where the edit points are there's some quite long sequences where everything had to happen you know and the the ribbons go in one direction and the cellophane goes around Mr Wonka's neck and then there's the shopping cart that spins and you know trying to do all of that hit the boxes make sure and we all know what shopping carts are like they go where they want to go don't they so you know some of that was quite tricky and then run up those steps stand on the middle of the um the educator and make sure that I hit my mark center without looking down and trying to find it because if I was off center when it opened I would crack my head or my arms or something and oh and, and you know and perfect lip, lip sync as well at the same time so it's, it's quite something <laughs> so how did that shoot scene work yeah um it was literally what you see um standing on the shoot that had a you know a trapdoor that was going to drop you know two sides of it and they'd said to me make sure you stand in the middle don't put your arms out which is often your instinct isn't it when you're falling you put your arms out to save yourself they said if you do that you'll whack them on the side so don't do that and people always ask where did you go kids always want to know where did you go to and uh, yeah there was no magic on that I landed on some cardboard boxes <laughs> and from what I read in your memoir it wasn't cracking your head that you were most worried about what was below yeah the assistant director's son, uh, not the one that was in the movie, so he was the older brother. So Bobby, there was a uh, Timmy, Bobby, and Billy Rowe, and Billy Rowe was the eldest of Jack Rowe's sons, the assistant director's sons, and he was rather cute. And I quite liked him, um, and he was one of the guys that was there waiting at the bottom to sort of catch me and make sure I didn't bounce back up again. Of course, what I was thinking was, oh, my God, if he's looking up, he's going to see straight up my skirt. So I was rather hoping that my skirt did not do a Marilyn Monroe and fly up around my ears. <laughs> and one of those scenes took 36 takes. What? Why so many takes? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, that's the most takes I've ever done in my life. Um, I think from the cellophane going around Wonka's neck to the rest of it was about 36 takes. Because all the things, you know, sometimes you'd punch the ribbons and they'd look, they'd fall rather pathetically. You know, there was no special effects, you know, canisters to make things, you know, wires or anything. It was, you know, you're going to do this and you, they've got to go where we want them. You know, sometimes you'd punch it and it'd just go eh, a bit of a limp thing or the, the shopping cart would go in completely the wrong direction. So there were a lot of... And then, yeah, a lot of bits and pieces there that had to happen. Now, you mentioned before there were some variations between the book and the movie. Uh, in the book by Roald Dahl, Veruca Salt encounters uh, squirrels, not golden geese. Yeah, I think that worked quite well. It was changed because they had no technology to do what they needed to do with the squirrels. They couldn't make that work. You know, and that might have been one of the things maybe that Roald Dahl didn't like. But, you know, we back then, we're talking 19... 70 when we shot it you know how the hell were you going to get um squirrels to do what they needed them to do so it was easier so the the, the goose were cgi'd in so the top of the educator is what i saw and then the, the geese were cgi'd later and while that was your end 
going down the shoot, it wasn't your final scene that you shot for the film. No, it wasn't. We shot things slightly out of order um, at this point. They were trying as much as possible to get rid of the kids in the order that they went. But in Denise's scene, the uh, the the gum, um, the inventing room, just prior to that, she'd broken her shoe and they had to send back to New York, which was where they'd come from, to get another pair of shoes for continuity. I always had my suspicions about this, and I did say it to Denise. Um, her sister, Patty, was her chaperone, and Patty was having a great time in Germany, and I think she was having a thing with one of the drivers, and I think Patty wanted to stay on a bit longer, so I think she broke the shoe deliberately. That's my theory. Can't prove it, but there you go. Your final scene when you won the golden ticket in the factory. Yes, yeah, so yeah, we did shoot that, I think, last. Um, I remember shooting, you know, just seeing all these heaps and heaps of Wonka bars on the tables. That was on another sound stage. And yeah, they were all being put in a skip and set fire to afterwards, which now, you know, breaks your heart. And I kept a few of them. I gave a few to friends when I came back. And I really enjoyed doing all that mean stuff, spinning round in the chair. Oh, right, where is it? Why haven't they found it being really hideous? And working with the wonderful Pat Coombs, who played my mother. So I knew who she was. I'd seen her on countless British TV things. So I was quite uh, thrilled to be working with her. All right, where is it? Why haven't they found it? Baruka, sweetheart, I'm not a magician. Give me time. I want it now. And I think the director, Mel Stewart, really got you riled up in that scene. Yeah, he kept saying, you know, be meaner, be meaner, be meaner. And so, you know, spinning round and round and round in that chair and throwing papers all over the place. So, yeah, he he really wanted me to go for it. And I, I think that's, I do like that. It's a, it's a wonderful entrance, isn't it? That you just, okay, you've set up this girl who just hits the ground running and is hideous. I won't talk to you ever again. You're a rotten mean father. You'll never get me anything I want. I won't go to school till I have it. Baruka, sweetheart, angel. Now, there are only four tickets left in the whole world, and the whole ruddy world's hunting for them. What can I do? Now, one of the characters that was a great mystery and uh, once again was written specifically for the movie was Arthur Slugworth, who wanted the everlasting gobstopper. Uh, what was he whispering in your ear as you were walking back up to the office with your golden ticket in hand? <laughs> That was it. <laughs> he was very sinister. Gunther Meisner, uh, who played that character, and he was very sinister. He kept his distance from us, so he was doing a little bit of method acting, I think, to because he was creepy, you know, that terrible scar down his face and everything. He did kind of creep me out, didn't like him. You know, perfectly nice man, but, you know, the character was, was creepy. And a few days before your birthday, your mother and sister paid a visit to you on the set? They did. Um, she came out for my birthday. Um, my birthday, I think, was Monday, and they managed to come out. She got some time off work, and they came because we didn't have any money, they came by boat and train, which was an arduous journey. I mean, I think it took them longer to get there than they actually spent with me, but that was the only way that they could afford to do it. And she came out carrying a birthday cake, carried it all the way from the UK. And I think they'd had to go via Belgium and Holland and wherever else to get to me, I can't remember, and came out carrying this birthday cake. It's for my poor mother. Um, and then, you know, they went back on, you know, Sunday evening, you know, my sister had to go back to school and my mum was going back to work. And that that was really 
rough and I you know I missed them dreadfully at that point I think you cope with things but you know it's the reminder that they were going home I felt quite lonely at that point. I mean one of the features of your book is the colour stills from the movie and your time on the set Uh, I mean I understand that was a very special 13th birthday present from Gene Wilder. He was, he was, and that was such a wonderful thing to do. Um, it was my birthday present from Gene. He arranged for um, a photographer to come on set and take a, a set of colour stills for my 13th birthday. And, you know, happy to say I've still got all those pictures and they did uh, form the basis of, of my book. Um, and the letters, when I told my mum that I was going to do this memoir, um, she said, oh, yeah, you know, she'd kept all the letters that I wrote to her. So... It was lovely because that was a, you know, it was intended to be a memory job just to remind me of things, but they were quite sweet, really. It kind of sums up a picture of what was going on. Now, a couple of favourite personal scenes. There's the the one with Tim Brooke Taylor, who we sadly lost last year, where he's manufactured the computer that will pinpoint the precise location of the remaining golden tickets, and the computer turns out to be a bit of a smart ass. He says, what would a computer do with a lifetime supply of chocolate? <sighs> I am now telling the computer exactly what he can do with a lifetime supply of chocolate. Yeah, it was lovely. I worked with Tim many years later. We did a, a, a stage show together and spent you know, some time together. A lovely guy. And he was talking about that. He said it must have been one of the last scenes to be shot and he remembered that all the suitcases were sort of lined up in the corridors and everybody was like can we just get this done we've got planes to catch so yeah I do like that all that all those montage uh, scenes where you know they're looking for the Wonka bars I love the woman whose husband has been kidnapped and she's how long have I got to think it over I love that I think she's wonderful um you know the auction house you know her majesty the the White House, you know, all of those things. I think they're, they're very funny and very clever. I love those sequences. I, I, I watch them all the time. And Paris and I, Mike TV, we often do a little uh, movie tour. And, well, we were until this year. Um, we would do it every year around the States. And we always try and catch that wonderful, the kidnap scene with the woman. How long have I got to think it over? Now, following Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you, you've, you've actually gone on to have quite a successful acting career. Yeah, I didn't do too badly. Um, I went into a soap uh, with the BBC when I was 17, a series called Angels, which was about nurses. I was in that for two years. Then I went into the original series of Poldark, um, playing another bad girl, a lot of other stuff, a lot of theatre work. So I've had a pretty good career. I came to Australia, which I absolutely loved. And I came to Australia to do the Melbourne Comedy Festival uh, with one of your own, Matthew Hardy, who'd written this bonkers show about his quest to track down Veruca Assault, which was mad, which we, we then took it to the Edinburgh Festival. So I had a, I had a great time. I, I loved my trip to Australia. It was great. I also understand that you were a fitness instructor on a TV show. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was bringing up two children on my own, you know, trying to keep a roof over my head. And I qualified as a fitness instructor and then ended up doing that on TV, on daytime TV. So that was uh, that was a good, you know, little trip while it lasted. Um, I got to travel with it. I got to, you know, do bike rides in China and Egypt and India and Cuba. So that was fun. Then I quit acting about 10 years ago I think. So where did the interest in psychotherapy come from? Out out of the fitness that's where it started so as a fitness instructor I was 
working with some people on TV that were seriously obese, like, um, I don't know if you do pounds or stones or whatever, but they were like 32 stone and, you know, the average person would be around about 10 stones. So you can see how big they were trying to figure out what goes wrong. You know, we all know what to do, eat less and exercise more. But for some people, why does that prove so difficult, including me? <laughs> and, uh, and so that was what led me to study therapy, really. I'm thinking from a fitness point of view, trying to figure out, what goes on in somebody's head? Why do we sabotage ourselves? So that's why I studied as a counsellor, as a therapist, psychotherapist. And then as I became qualified, I was drawn more to palliative care. And that's what I went into. And I was uh, working in a hospice and working with cancer patients until recently. Yeah, that's been my work for the last 10, 12 years. And now, just a few months ago, another slight change of direction, I thought I've done enough palliative care now. And I've gone into counselling in a university setting so working with students. Now I always love a before they were famous story and I remember speaking to Frank Ifield a number of years ago when he was headlining an act in the 1960s and the warm-up act happened to be a group of four young boys from Liverpool or four young men from Liverpool called the Beatles. Now I understand you had a interaction with a, a very young Pierce Brosnan. I did indeed. I did indeed. So when I finished Whole Dark, I went in to do, I played Dorothy in Wizard of Oz in York, the York Theatre Royal over a Christmas, you know, it was the Christmas show. And the newly out of drama school stagehand, assist, uh, whatever he was, um, yeah, assistant stage manager was a young actor called Pierce Brosnan. And it was Pierce's job to make my tea in the interval. And he also played a tree, I believe. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we did this you know, production. It was great fun. I've seen him since. Um, and sweetly, he, he remembered me. And, uh, and then I was doing something else. And um, the, you know, by now he's you know, hugely famous. And the producer came in and he said, oh, Julie, uh, I was speaking to Piers Brosnan. You know, he sends his love to you. I said, could you say that again and louder so that everybody can hear? <laughs> now, I also understand that you've done a few tours throughout the world with your fellow cast members. What's the reaction been like and what sort of audiences do you get to these things? It's interesting because you know, now we're almost getting like three and four generations. So, you know, the grown-ups, the adults will come up to you and they will tell you, you know, this was the movie that got me through a tough time or this is movie of my childhood or I remember being, you know, taken to it by my parents. So, it's, it, you know, it, we always call it the Wonka effect. You know, somebody could be having a rather, you might want to bleep this out, but if you're having a shitty day and then we kind of, talk about the Wonka effect and you see the look on somebody's face and they smile and they're like ah oh, really you know so it's it's been great to get that reaction what's the one thing when people meet you recognize you they they sort of ask you <laughs> they say to me will you say it will you say it will you please say it will you say it and I go oh what is it you want me to say so they always want me to say I want it now now, I understand you're also on Cameo, so people can get a personal message from Veruca Salt herself. I am. Yeah, that's a fun thing to do. I thank you for that. Yeah, you can see me on Cameo. I've only just started doing it, and um, it's, it's a fun thing to do. You know, people book you, and that's a way of getting a message, and you get to almost chat. 
So yeah, I record them in my home. Yeah, I was most surprised and, um, you know, been some lovely ones. It was a, a very sweet one that um, a hospital in America, I think it was in San Diego, booked um, because they were showing the movie to their staff as a thank you for all their work during COVID. And I thought that was such a nice thing to do. So I was really thrilled to do that for them. Um, so yeah, I've had a few fun ones. So it's, 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 it's sweet. So yeah, go on Cameo and give me a five-star review. <laughs> Finally, what do you think the legacy is of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, F- 50 years this year? It is extraordinary. And now, you know, you, you asked earlier about what it was like showing it to my children. Well, now I'm a grandmother um, and I have a two-year-old grand, well, she's not quite two, she's a year and a half, uh, my darling granddaughter, Amber. So I'll be showing it to her at some point. And that will be really interesting to see what her reaction is. I can't wait to show her that. Um, the legacy, it still goes on, doesn't it? You know, I mean, people say to me, you know, oh, it was on TV and I stopped what I was doing to watch it. I've heard that, you know, during the last year when it's been so difficult for everybody, people have said, you know, it was my kind of go-to movie. It was like, you know, chicken soup makes me feel better, makes me smile. So if that carries on, then I'm happy. But it's been an absolute pleasure reminiscing for the past hour about a film that is, you know, not only close to my heart, but many others. And I, I do hope that the people listening to this interview are getting as much joy of, out of it as I have in speaking to Julie Dawn Cole. And for me, I mean, I, I get as much of a thrill watching it in my 40s as I did as an eight-year-old. And, you know, what a legacy to have. The book is called I Want It Now, a memoir of life on the set of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory which you can purchase through Amazon. And Julie Dawn Cole, a.k.a. Veruca Salt, it's been an absolute honour speaking to you today. Thank you, thank you. It's been fun. Um, Stay safe and well, and let's hope that we all come out of this madness that's gone on. We can all get back to some kind of normality. I want the works. I want the whole works. Presents and prizes and sweets and surprises of all shapes and sizes. And now, don't care. How I want it now Don't care how I want it now Now that was a lot of fun and a big thanks to Julie for being so generous with her time there on a Sunday morning in England and no doubt Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory will find its way onto the TV screens multiple times over the next few months as it celebrates its 50th anniversary. Well, that's all from the Ford Show for this time. Thanks very much for listening. Until the same time next week, it's good night from... F-O-R-D.